All right, grab your Bibles. Um, actually, first, <laughs> before we launch in, we're starting a new sermon series. Some of you are like, it's about time. Uh, we're starting a new sermon series in uh, two weeks. We're going to be going through 1 Corinthians 15 uh, to work our way toward Easter. 1 Corinthians 15 is the most exhaustive passage, not exhausting, exhaustive passage in the New Testament. Uh, teaching about the resurrection of Christ. Um, it's like, I don't know, a whole bunch of verses. It's really long. It's like a book by itself. And so we're actually going to spend a number of weeks studying 1 Corinthians 15. I'm super excited about this. We've developed these books um, to help you engage. Remember, if you're going to get the most out of this, it, it, I'm glad. I mean, I'm always glad when people show up and, and sing worship to God and engage in the sermon. And, and, but, but for you to really grow, right? You need to be in the Word yourself. And so this is our attempt to equip you to help you do that, right? And, and in fact, we want you to pick up one of these books today. They're right out there in the lobby, because even though the, the sermon series doesn't start for two weeks, there's, there's a preparatory study, a, a contextual study. We want you to do this week that'll help you understand how 1 Corinthians 15 fits into the context. Um, and so uh, grab these, and, and remember that, that the goal is to get you into the text we're preaching the week before we preach it, right? So that when you show up, you're already familiar with it. You've already wrestled with it. You, you've already been praying about it and thinking about it. And that helps you to engage um, with us most effectively. It's not all brand new and, and you know, you get one thought and then you're lost. And, and, um, but but it, it just helps you engage, all right? Y'all with me on this? Can we do this? right? It's going to take some time each week. It's going to take a little bit of commitment. It might take a little bit of rearranging of your schedule. It might require you in the morning uh, to, instead of, you know, scrolling through Facebook, to shut that thing down and, and grab this, right? Or it might require you at night after the little kids finally go to bed and you're completely exhausted to take 15 minutes. But I'm telling you, it'll be worth it. It'll be worth it, okay? So let's grab this thing. Let's do it together. Uh, these are in the lobby. All right, grab your Bibles. We're going over to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 this morning. We are continuing our sermon series called Every Tribe, Every Tongue, the Gospel, Race, and the Church. We've been looking at a theology of race uh, to help us understand God's plan for diversity, right? And how God's plan for diversity informs how we engage diversity today and can help us really navigate some of the tricky cross currents in our culture today where it seems like the conversation continually is is just trying to be hijacked um, by people who have who have social and political agendas right everybody's trying to make a point and everybody's trying to make an argument and everybody's trying to be right um, and, and so let's just take a look at what the bible has to say and see how it informs our thoughts and minds and i know some of you are like wait a minute steve 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 the bulletin says we're going to colossians 3 and you just said Acts 6. Yeah, we're doing that. Um, if you've been around for a while, this doesn't surprise you. Uh, I, I asked, we're, Colossians 3 is the conclusion of the series. I'm going to preach it next week. Um, I studied it. I wrote the sermon. And I got to Friday and I realized that the sermon I had written was not the sermon I was going to be delivering. The Spirit just really convicted me that I needed to take another week and we needed to look at this passage today. Um, and so I, I set that sermon aside and I wrote another one. Um, and, and so that's where we're going this morning. Um, what we find in Acts chapter 6 is a phenomenally insightful case study in how to deal with ethnic tension in the church, especially when it erupts into conflict. All right, so last week, Aaron Layton, uh, my friend, laid out uh, the challenge of diversity, and he looked at the church in Antioch, and I want to remind you of some key points because it ties in this morning. Um, the church in Antioch was the first wildly diverse church. Like, it was, it was wildly diverse, and it became one of the most important churches in all of church history. The impact at the church of Antioch, I don't think, can be overstated. Um, but, but before I get to that, let me, let me talk to you about the diversity. In Acts 13, we're told who the elder team is of, of this church, who the leadership team is of this church. It's Barnabas, who is a Hellenistic Jew. That means a Greek-speaking Jew who lives outside of Jerusalem. Paul, he's a Hebraic Jew, an Aramaic-speaking Jew, a Jew who actually lives in Jerusalem. Simon Niger, uh, we don't know a lot about him. Niger isn't his last name. It's a descriptive, and it means black. 
So more than likely, he was a man not just who was of dark skin, but of very dark skin. Um, Lucius of Cyrene, Cyrene is in northern Africa, uh, and Menaean, who we know was raised with Herod the Tetrarch, which means he's Greek and, and very wealthy. He, he came from the upper class uh, Greek. So you have socioeconomic diversity, you have ethnic diversity, and what you need to realize is that's the elder team. Like when they got together to talk about the church, those are the guys that were sitting around the table, and that was unheard of in the ancient world. In the ancient world, they didn't have a value called multiculturalism, right? In the ancient world, they didn't have a, a poster on the wall, diversity, right, with a big explanation about why it's so important. In the ancient world, you hung out with your tribe. You stayed with people who looked like you and spoke like you. That's where you found safety. That's where you found identity. Now, you might deal with people in other ethnic groups for economic purposes, uh, but very seldom did you ever shift and actually cross over into other ethnic groups. It just wasn't safe. It wasn't done. This, this was ridiculously diverse. And this church became the church that changed the world. This church not only was, was unheard of in the ancient world, but became a sending force. They're, they're the church that sent out Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journeys. Now, if you don't know what's going on, you need to read the book of Acts. The book of Acts will explain to you what took place there. But Paul and Barnabas were the first um, significant church planting movement. And it's changed the world. If you follow the family tree of Trailhead Church, you're going to go back far enough, you're going to find Paul and Barnabas. They were the the seed that grew into the spread of the gospel around the world. Um, So as the anchor of the first explosive church planting movement, the first movement of the gospel out into the world, it came from Antioch. Now this was such a crazy thing that people didn't know what to do with it, right? People in Antioch were looking at this and they were like, who are these people, right? They're hanging out and there's no explanation for why they're hanging out. We see them together, and it makes no sense. Like, they like each other, right? We hear them singing, and we keep hearing them use this name, Christos, 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 Christos. What do we call these people? guess we'll call them Christians. That's where the word Christian came from. It was the very first group to ever bear that name. And, and, and you need to know why they got it. They got it because they didn't know what else to call them. There was no other category. They had no way to understand what was happening here. It was so uh, new and, and, and unexplainable that they had to come up with a completely new name to describe this group. So this, this early church in Antioch knew something about the challenges of diversity. You had to know that, that it was challenging, right? When you had those different kinds of, of cultural and social norms, and you had those kinds of ethnic identities, when you, had, when you had those kinds of tensions coming together, you know they knew something of the challenges of diversity, but they also knew something of the gift of diversity. The church in Antioch is a foreshadowing of the church in Revelation chapter 7. Every tribe and every tongue gathering around he who sits on the throne, worshiping together with a new identity anchored in the work and person of Christ as opposed to their ethnic background. So that's, that's the church in Antioch. This morning, what I want to do is I, I want to take a look at an ethnic challenge that happened in the church before Antioch was ever born. And it was a critical moment in the early church that could have destroyed the work of the gospel in the church. It was a critical moment that I think is often overlooked um, that, that could have derailed the work of the gospel. But by the grace of God, the church rose to the challenge of their day. And I think their example is an incredible uh, insight for us how we can rise to the challenge of ours. So let's take a look at Acts chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read this out loud. I would like you to uh, follow along in your Bibles, Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now in the days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And 
And what they said pleased the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, this passage is best known um, because it, it is the first time we see deacons appointed in the church. Right? So when we talk about our ecclesiology, our church structure, we have elders and we have deacons. And the reason we have deacons is actually this passage right here. And, and when I taught through Acts previously and we came to this passage, um, that was the primary lens that I approached it through because that's an important event. It has shaped uh, church governance structures from that point forward, right? And, and, and um, uh, helped organize people to be on, on mission, right? Now, the English word deacon never appears in the text, uh, but the Greek word does, right? When, it, when the elders say it's not right for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables, that word serve is the Greek word diakonos, which, which is servant, to serve. A deacon is a servant. They serve the church, right? They lead by serving, right? And, and so that word is here. It's just not used as a title, um, and, and I've already taught that, and I would encourage you to go back uh, to, to our Acts series um, to hear that if that's something you want to dig into. But this morning what I want to do is take a look at something happening really behind the scenes here. And that's the very simple question. Where did, why did they appoint deacons to begin with? Right? What's going on in the background that, that the, the, the early church felt the need? Right? Well, we can say that it was a problem. A problem that uh, confronted the early church and, um, and I think honestly could have destroyed it. Uh, so let me give you a little bit of context. This is in Acts 6, we're in the early days of the early church, right? This is an exciting, explosive, um, unpredictable period of time, right? Jesus rose from the dead, right? Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus went to the cross and he died. I didn't know what, you know, everyone, all of his disciples were like, wait, 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 this, this means everything's going wrong, and we know, of course, that meant everything was going right. Jesus came as the hero to die, right? He was on mission in order to be our substitute in judgment. He died in our place as our substitute, right? He stepped into the judgment we deserved and died in our place. Now, the disciples didn't get that yet. Right? All they knew was that their Messiah, their hero, their friend, had been crucified, and, and they were distraught. And then on the third day, they get news that he had risen from the dead. And of course, we know that means, theologically, that his mission was complete. That, that when he said prophetically, from the cross, it is finished, it wasn't just, it wasn't just a, okay, this day's over, right? It was a prophetic proclamation God's justice has been satisfied. It is finished. And we know that when he rose from the dead, he arose as a hero, inviting us to a new way of life, inviting us to a new faith in him, inviting us to, to, to set aside our self-salvation projects, all of our attempts to fix ourselves and improve ourselves and, and make up for all of our weaknesses and atone for all of our, our sins and, 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 and instead trust in him, right? Instead trust in him. Jesus had risen from the dead. And he appeared to the disciples and he appeared to, to public groups. He appeared to more than 500. And then he said to the disciples, go to Jerusalem and sit in an upper room because something really, really special is going to happen. Right? So they all go gather in the upper room. And, and while that's happening, it's, it's during the feast of the Passover in Jerusalem. And what that means is, is this is like the big feast of the year when, when anybody who believes in Yahweh comes from very, very far away to the, to the city of Jerusalem in order to be part of the festivities, part of the worship, part of the celebration, uh, and, and part of the, the ceremonies. Right? And so you have, you have Hebraic Jews the Jews who live in Jerusalem. You have Hellenistic Jews, all the Jews that had moved out of Jerusalem, out into the surrounding J Greek territories uh, in order to do life, do business, and, and were primarily Greek-speaking Jews. They all came home, right? You had proselytes coming in um, who, were, who were Gentile believers of Yahweh that lived out in the, in the diaspora, out in, in, in the surrounding areas. They're all there. So you have this huge crowd 
And then the Spirit descends on the disciples in the upper room, this rushing wind, this flame of fire on top of their heads. Man, it is such an incredibly powerful picture of the Spirit of God descending on them and empowering them and giving birth to the new age of redemptive history, the age in which we still live, this age in which the church is, is, is being called to drink deeply of the love of God, deeply of the redemptive work of Christ, and then move out in that power to share it with others. Right? And immediately the Spirit sends them out into the community and gifts them to preach the good news of Jesus' victorious resurrection. And they're out there talking and everybody hears them in their own language. That was one of the gifts God gave. It's called the gift of tongues. Right? In Greek, the word tongues is translated languages. They were actually speaking foreign languages they had never learned. Right? Supernaturally, 3,000 people came to faith that day. And it says, more were being added daily. There were thousands and thousands of brand new believers in Jesus. And it created chaos. <laughs> um, because now all of a sudden you've got all these people that are now followers of Jesus, right? And, and, and the Greek, the Hellenistic uh, uh, Jews who traveled from afar are like, well, do we go home? Right? We have this new faith. Jesus rose from the dead. Right? And, and my people now are here. My center now is, is with these people, the, this, the church. So they decided not to go home. And, and the Hebraic Jews were like, we're going to throw open our doors, and we're, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna invite you into our homes. We're going to pool our resources. We're going to sell our property. It was a radical outpouring of generosity. Unheard of. I mean, it was It was amazing. And they went from house to house, it tells us, house to house, breaking bread, singing songs, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. It was a time of incredible joy and freedom and power. It was also a time of incredible sacrifice and discomfort, right? Can you imagine having somebody move into your house long term? Um, and, and, and they're selling their goods at home, but that takes time. You have to sell your goods, right? The whole, the whole church starts selling their stuff and bringing the, the money to the feet of the apostles, and the apostles are making sure that it's being distributed and everybody's being taken care of. It was an incredible period of church history. I'm fascinated with this period of church history. It's amazing. Amazing. People so undone by the love of God. Their pride is humbled. Their greed is silenced. They're no longer discontentfully thinking about what can I have and what can I get. They're thinking about what can I share, right? They are being enriched by love, not, not by personal property and personal fame and personal security and personal comfort. They're laying it all down. They're taking up their crosses and following Jesus daily. And it's overflowing in joy. Man, that's a community. If I can go back and be part of any community in history, man, I would love to be there. That would be incredible. Undone by grace and made strong in generosity. But it was only a matter of time. It was only a matter of time before conflict would arise. You know why? Because they were still broken human beings just like you and me. They still had the brokenness of worldliness that they had inherited from their first parents inside their hearts. Even though they were being freed by the grace of God, they, they still had pride. Even though they were being freed by the grace of God, they, there was still that, that, that craving greed in their heart. It was still there. It was being overcome by grace, and grace was winning the day. But, but those things were still there. And that's what we see surfacing in Acts 6. So this, this morning, what I want to do is just give you a context for Acts 6. Let's, let's take an overview and find out what actually happened here. And then at the end, uh, I, I'm going to give you um, some applications for us today. So let's take a look. It's verse 1. Uh, let's take a look. First of all, what we find is that immediately, right in this context, a conflict arises. Now, in those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, when the church was growing like crazy, right, a complaint by the Hellenists the Greek-speaking Jews, arose against the Hebrews, the Aramaic Jerusalem Jews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So in the daily distribution of, of food, of resources, of money, the Hellenistic Jews noticed that, that their widows weren't being cared for like everybody else. Their widows weren't being cared for like the Hebraic Jews' widows, right? They, they, they noticed. Now, 
up to this point, remember, the, the, the apostles were Hebraic Jews. And more than likely, everybody they had empowered to lead was a Hebraic Jew. It would have made sense, right? They, they shared a common culture. These are the people they already knew. You're much more likely to empower somebody you know, right? Um, uh, these are the people they had rubbed shoulders with. When, and, 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 and there were probably those subtle pressures because Hebraic Jews had a tremendous amount of prejudice toward non-Hebraic Jews, toward Hellenistic Jews. They're the sellouts. They're the ones that moved out into the surrounding country. They're the ones that speak Greek. Um, they're out there trying to make money. We're the, we're the ones who have stayed committed. We're, we're, we're the ones that, that are, are, are true to our roots. We're the ones paying a price for our, for our faith, right? And and, and I'm, I, we don't know how much that played into it, but we do know that, that up to this point, they had likely only uh, appointed Hebraic leaders, and that might have been purely because those are the people they knew and they trusted, right? But what ended up happening is the days and the weeks went by, the Hebraic Jews were, were starting to take care of their own people a little bit better. And they weren't noticing. But you know who did notice? The Hellenistic Jews. They noticed. They noticed. Because they noticed, and, 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 and we don't know exactly um, how it all came about, but, but they noticed. You know why? Because widows. Why widows, right? Why, of all the groups, why, why are we talking about widows? Well, in the ancient world, uh, there's a reason the Bible tells us to care for specifically widows and orphans, right? James tells us this is pure and undefiled religion, uh, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world, right? Um, uh, there's a reason orphan and widows are often highlighted because they were on the very outside, the very outskirts of society. They didn't have an adult male to vouch for them, to protect them, to be a voice for them. And in a patriarchal society, that made them incredibly vulnerable because women couldn't confront men. W women didn't have a voice, a legal voice in that culture. They couldn't bring a formal complaint. They could speak words, but it didn't mean their words carried any authority. It didn't mean anybody had to listen, right? They didn't have power. And because they didn't have social power, they were incredibly vulnerable right? And the same with the orphans, right? Now we're like, why, who would hurt an orphan? We love kids, right? We're, we, we're a culture kind of obsessed with children. Um, they weren't, <laughs> you need to know that that is not uh, a universal human thing. They, they saw kids as a future workforce. It didn't mean the parents didn't love their kids, um, but they weren't obsessed with their kids like we are, right? They weren't playing baby Mozart to make sure their kids were the smartest kids in the world, right? They, they weren't obsessed with what preschool they were going to to make sure they got on track to get to Yale, right? We might be a little idolatry obsessed, right? But that's a whole other sermon. Um, but, but, but they were orphans and widows were, were seen as, as disposable, and they were incredibly vulnerable. And so the Hellenistic Jews, when they saw it, the people who were weakest and most vulnerable in, in their ethnic group were, were being treated differently. The, 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 there was an issue of justice. A complaint arose. And we don't know exactly how it happened, but they grew more and more concerned as the weakest and most vulnerable in their group were not being cared for, and so a complaint arose. I love that word complaint uh, because it means complaint in the original language. Um, in the Greek, it's gongamos. Um, and I've told you guys before that when I learned my Greek vocabulary, um, I play these little word pictures in my head, like hupomene is a word that means endurance. And I picture of a, hupo, a hippo remaining under the water because that's, that, that's a graphic image for what that word means, right? Hupomene, endurance. It's that, it's that strength God puts into us where we, we can remain under the pressure without being crushed or without having to run away, right? Uh, gongamos. <laughs> Um, a clanging gong is a good description of what this word means. An annoying, clanging, incessant noise. The word means complaint, grumbling, protest. It is the expression of outrage and hurt. This is not an emotionally neutral word. It's a word that is loaded with emotion, right? This isn't a word that describes uh, an intellectual protest where somebody comes and says, hey, I, 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 
I would like to very reasonably discuss with you, right? This is, it's a word that indicates that, that there is a, a grievance, a pain, a hurt. And it is being expressed in a way that expresses that emotion. They were hurt and they were getting angry and their words were voicing their frustration. Now, it likely started in private conversations with one another. Hey, did you notice? Hey, am I just, am I missing it? But, but it seems to me that... And then pretty soon, it's like becoming so obvious to them. They're seeing it every day, and we don't know exactly, but, but pretty soon those conversations move from just inside to talking to some of the Hebraic leaders. Like, hey, why don't you take care of? Why aren't you? And, 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 and we don't know exactly what happened, but it says the complaint rose before the apostles, which means somehow this complaint got noisy enough, the gong got incessant enough that the apostles finally heard about it and paid attention to it. The apostles at this period of time had their heads in their Bibles and their minds in prayer. And that's not an insult at all, right? Jesus just rose from the dead, right? The apostles had the job of going back through the entire Old Testament and reinterpreting everything they had learned in light of the fact that the Messiah had come, died, and rose again. Right? They were putting together this thing called the Apostles' Doctrine that actually became the New Testament that's been entrusted to us. It was kind of a big job. Right? And so it was incredibly important that the Apostles were able to focus on the Word of God and prayer. But, but the noise of this grumbling got loud enough. This protest came in front of them, and it meant that they had to lift their heads and pay attention. And once they saw what was happening, They took quick and clear action. Take a look at verse 2. In verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. Right? Not just the Hellenists. Not just the protesters. Everybody. Right? Getting them all together. And said it's not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. That's a funny thing to say. It almost sounds like they're grumbling a little bit themselves. Like, come on, y'all. Seriously, we got important work to do over here. What do you want to do? Go serve tables, right? We're important. That's not important work. You want us to sacrifice something that's that significant to do something that insignificant? And I'm going to propose to you that's a complete misreading of the text. Uh, The phrase, serve tables, where we might think of a waiter showing up with a bus tub and wiping down the table and taking away the dishes, uh, that word literally kind of means to keep the books. To serve the tables means to keep the books. It means to be um, a, a, a logistical leader, um, a financial uh, organizer for the community. Right? Listen, they weren't saying they were too important to do this work. They were saying it wasn't their role. They had a role. They had a job they had to focus on. So they were saying they weren't the best ones to solve this problem. It was a problem that needed to be solved, but they weren't the best ones to solve it. So verses 3 and 4, their solution, Therefore pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Pick out seven men, seven spiritual leaders, full of the Spirit, who will be able to lead this community into a solution. I want you to recognize that they weren't just picking seven men who were going to go bust tables. They were picking seven men who were going to sit at the leadership table and have a voice of authority in helping shape the solution to the problem that was confronting the church. They were were going to be giving them positions of, of real influence. That's why they had to be men full of the Holy Spirit. And not just nice guys. And this group became the first deacons in the church. All right. Typical of Luke in the book of Acts, um, Luke gives us insightful dialogue throughout the book of Acts. But we very, very seldom, and I'm, I'm fairly confident, never get everything that was said in any given speech or conversation. Luke focuses on the most important things that he thinks highlight the critical moments because he's moving pretty quickly through a history. There were other things said in this conversation, Um, and I'll tell you how I know. 
The seven brothers that they picked, when you look at their names, they're all Hellenistic Jewish names. I think we can, with fairly strong confidence, most commentators would lean this way, say they picked seven Hellenistic men. Now think about what that means. The problem arose because the Hellenists said, you're not seeing us. There's an issue of justice that is arising because whether it's from bias or simply overlook, you don't see us the way we see ourselves. You don't see the problems we're facing the same way we see them. Your solutions don't fit our problems. And the the apostles' response was, I'm going to empower you to We're going to empower you to help solve it. We're going to give you a seat at the table. We're going to honor your hurt. And we're going to give authority to your voice. That's amazing, you guys. When the apostles used their authority, when they used their power, they used it to empower the Hellenists. They didn't swoop in and say culturally, we know what's best. Or they didn't just show up to the leaders they already had and say, hey, you guys, can you just do better? Come on, these guys are bugging us. Keep them quiet. Or show up to them and say, um, just have some conversations with them. Come up with a solution, right? They said to the Hebrew believers, give them power. Give them influence. Give them authority. This is radical. It's radical. It was radical then, and honestly, it's radical now. The solution to the protests the apostles demonstrate was to honor their hurt and empower their voices. You know what's amazing? There were no counter-protests. You don't see the Hebraic Jews rising up in defensiveness. You don't hear the the counter-arguments coming up. Uh, You don't, right? No one was like, if you give them more, it means we get less. No one was like, if they had never left Jerusalem to begin with, they wouldn't be charity cases. It's their fault. They should bear the consequences. No one was like, I've worked hard for what I've got. Who are you to tell me I have to give it up? In fact, verse 5, you guys, I'm telling you, this is amazing. Look at verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. What they said pleased the whole gathering. Listen, someone had to sacrifice to make these adjustments. Someone had to give up enjoying more so that those who were unjustly getting less could get what they deserved, what was right. In order for what was wrong to be set right, in order for justice to be honored, it was going to require them to sacrifice. And they were pleased. (laughs) Holy cow. The apostles are like, here's the solution. We're going to honor their hurt and we're going to sacrifice to meet their needs. And they're like, yes! That sounds like a great plan. (laughs) You wonder why I would love to go back and be part of this community. Holy cow. Grace was killing their greed. Their, Their experience of the love of God was undoing their pride and killing their worldliness. Their need to be first. Their need to, to, to have what they have and, and continually get more, to be afraid of, of people that might diminish their, their comfort or their worth or their standing. For them, the world wasn't a place of limited resources where you had to fight others to keep what you have and get more. To them, the world was a place filled with the, the abundance of the kingdom of God. Where the resurrected Christ is king and he is the one who provides for us and gives us our significance and our meaning and our purpose and our goods. And everything we have was given to us and everything we give away honors him. 
It was a place where their ethnic group was not their primary identity. And their ethnic ways of doing things weren't seen as superior or better. They didn't think of themselves as, as, as entitled to these privileges they had that were costing others what was their due. They were loved by God, and as a result, they were free to love one another. The, the result, you guys, take a look at the result in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly, greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many, even of the priests, became obedient to the faith. The word of God increased. Not numerically. In influence, in power, in the community and through the community. The word of God was getting more of their hearts. It was transforming them. And through them, it was having an impact on the community. Even to the point where many of the Hebrew priests were becoming believers. Right? It wasn't just their compelling arguments that were winning them over. It was their compelling community. It was the fact that not only did they say they believed these things, but they were living them out in a way that was radically unexplainable outside of the resurrection of Christ. When persecution arises later, because it does, Stephen gets martyred and, and, and a great persecution arises against the church in Jerusalem led by this guy named Saul who would later become Paul the Apostle. But, but at this point, man, he's just, he is, he is the enemy's tool and, and he, he, he brings persecution and it scatters the church. Listen to this, you guys, listen to this. He scatters the church, but listen what happens. It is the Hellenistic Jews who become the primary missionary force in that scattering. Because they speak Greek, they go out into all the surrounding areas and they're just talking about the resurrection of Jesus, not just to other Hellenistic Jews, but to every Greek speaker they could find, even non-Jews, Gentiles, those of the ethnos, the other ethnic groups. That's how you end up with a church called Antioch. That's where that church came from. It was the Hellenistic Jews moving out in the generosity of the gospel. No longer anchored into their ethnic identity. Undone through this process of their pride and their self-protection that created a radically generous community that became the church that changed the world. All right, that's the story of Acts chapter 6. I have six application points for you. I'm going to hit them quickly. First, complaining and protesting are not always wrong. Complaining and protesting are not always wrong. There's a kind of complaint that is wrong, right? You're, some of you are like, wait, doesn't the Bible say that, that, that God's people grumbled against Moses, that grumbling is bad? Isn't complaining bad? Aren't we supposed to be content? Aren't we supposed to be peaceful? Aren't we supposed to be quiet and good citizens? Aren't we not supposed to make disruption? There is a kind of complaining. There is a kind of protesting that is wrong, and that's the kind of complaining that is first and primarily against God. That kind of grumbling and that kind of complaining is always sinful. When we look at the injustices of the world and we blame the God in whom there is no injustice for the brokenness that we've brought into this world, when, when we bring a complaining and a, and a grumbling that is rooted in our pride, when we bring a complaining and a grumbling that is rooted in our greed, I'm not getting to keep what I want to have. I'm, not, I'm being made uncomfortable. I'm being pushed into discomfort. That kind of complaining and grumbling is sinful. But there's a very, very different kind of complaining and grumbling. There's a very, very different kind of protest that is not only biblical, it honors God. And that's the kind that arises out of injustice. When we see people suffering unjustly, because of individuals or systems of injustice. 
It is not only not sinful, it is appropriate, and it might in fact be sinful not to. To be content with injustice, to see people suffer and sit back and think, well, it's not me. There is a complaint and a protest that honors God. In fact, there's a biblical name for it. It's called lament. Lament is the the name we give it when we bring it to God. We come before God and we say, this is not right. How long, O Lord, how long, how long? It's called protest when we bring it to people. How long, O people, how long? Second, protests can serve us by helping us in the majority culture discover our hidden prejudices and biases. Protests can serve us by helping us discover our hidden prejudices and biases. Listen, the Hebrew believers were drunk on grace in the early church, right? They had hidden biases. They had hidden prejudices, sure, but, but, but they were full of love. Here's the thing. They didn't see what they didn't see, and they didn't know what they didn't know. I, this is like a, I know this is, listen, y'all, you don't know what you don't know. And you don't know it until someone tells you. You don't see what you don't see until someone shows you. Different people have different experiences. Different people can go through the same experience and experience it very, very differently depending on how they're treated or they experience it personally. We we would be incredibly arrogant to assume that our experience is the universal experience, which is often what the majority culture does. My experience is the universal experience, and if you're not having my experience, then obviously there's something wrong with you. The Hellenists were serving the Hebraeus by actually bringing up their complaint because they didn't see it. They were just doing what felt normal. The dominant culture needed the subdominant culture to show them what they couldn't see. Protest is an act of love because protest is a call to growth. We're not doing as well as we can do and we're not being the best we can be. We can do better. We can engage God's love better. We can grow in grace better. We we can love each other better. Protest is a proclamation of love because those who are protesting see a better future because they see a problem that others are missing. As a result, third, if our minority members stay silent about the injustice that they suffer, we're all hurt. If our minority members stay silent about the injustice that they suffer, we're all hurt because we can't grow. We can't fix what we don't see. We can't grow in areas that we don't know that we're not loving. Had Listen, had the Hellenists not protested, had they been too spiritual, I don't know, complaining is unspiritual, protesting is unspiritual, We're going to be content. We're going to be quiet. We're just going to pray to God. We're going to bring our lament to God and just be silent with people because, I don't know, that might make them uncomfortable and that wouldn't be loving. So so we're just going to sit back quietly and silently. Listen, had they not brought their protest, had it not arisen before the apostles so that it could be addressed, it had the potential to stunt the growth of the early church. It had the ability to, in fact, sow seeds of division that would have undercut the strength of the witness and the power of the gospel in that community. Maybe they would have continued to exist, but without the dynamic reality that growing in love produces. It is possible if they had not dealt with this issue, Antioch would have never been formed. Because the only way Antioch is, a place like Antioch is formed is, is if the leaders have learned how to deal with discomfort. Fourth, when we receive protest, when we're in the majority culture or in the dominant people group, when we receive protest, we should humbly listen. We should hum- that should be our first response. That was, that's what the apostles did. Listen, what's your first impulse when you get a complaint? Like when you get there on Monday and you open up your email and you have an email right there, complaint in the subject line, what's your first thought? <laughs> 
Oh, awesome, a chance to grow. Sweet, thank you. No, you're like, you idiot, this is Monday. Couldn't you at least wait till Wednesday? Right? Are you kidding me? You're like, you don't even know what the complaint is, and you're already getting defensive. You're already formulating arguments against it. You don't even know what it is. That's our first impulse because that's the root of worldliness in our hearts. Pride and greed. Pride, I am entitled to my low-maintenance, hassle-free life. Who are you to disrupt it? Greed. I need to keep the peace I have and get more, and you're not giving it to me. We feel entitled. And we, and we don't like it. Y'all, let's just admit it. We don't like complaints. We don't like protests. You know why? Because protest is disruptive. It slows us down. It hinders our movement. It disrupts our, our calm, quiet, peaceful day. It makes us think about things we don't want to think about. It is, protest is disorienting. Because we're hearing things we haven't heard before. We're being challenged in ways we don't like to be challenged. We're being told things about ourselves that we don't want to hear and we immediately say are not true. Protest is disorienting. And as a result, protest can be unpleasant and we are, above all things, obsessed with our own comfort. Listen, grace, 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 grace calls us to first humbly listen. Listen to understand, not listen to argue against. Listen to see, not to attack. Not pretend to listen in order so you can get your turn to talk. Humbly listen to not only evaluate their ideas, but to honor their pain. Humbly listen. Now here's the thing, you may not end up agreeing with them. But if you humbly listen, you'll never lose sight of their humanity. You'll never lose sight of the image of God in them. You'll never lose sight and connection with human empathy. Your ability, even if you disagree with their thoughts, to identify with and, and, and feel for their pain. Why? Because it's not about being right. It's about acting in love, right? God doesn't call us to be right. I don't know if you know this, but God doesn't call us to be right. He calls us to act in love, right? So the, the, the next point, we need to evaluate lovingly, right? So we humbly listen and we evaluate lovingly. Y'all, this is the key. Listen, if you want to be right more than you want to love, this whole thing's derailed to begin with. If you're more obsessed with being right than you are with loving the person that is in front of you, you're already in the wrong place and you'll end up in the wrong destination. You have to want to love more than you want to be right. It's the only way you'll actually end up pursuing truth. Because if you want to be right, you will, without even knowing it, buy into whatever narrative confirms your bias. If you want to be right, you're just going to gravitate toward what's most comfortable for you. Because we are not primarily rational beings. That's a lie. We are primarily holistically beings, feeling beings. We are led by our heart, right? What, what the heart chooses, um, the will, or what the heart desires, the, the, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. There's the quote. What the heart desires, the will chooses, or, and the mind justifies. If we want to be right, we're just going to gravitate naturally toward whatever confirms our bias without even knowing it. Listen, the greatest commandment isn't love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and make sure you know which neighbor is right. The greatest commandment isn't love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and make sure you're always on the right side of every argument. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And you love yourself a lot. You're not constantly evaluating, picking apart, and dissecting yourself. That's not love. Listen, you may not end up agreeing with their accusation, but you won't end up losing sight of their humanity. So we need to be able to disagree in love. So we need to listen humbly, we need to evaluate lovingly, and then thirdly, we need to empower generously. 
We need to be willing to give power, authority, and influence away. We need to be willing to, to give up some of our, our comfort so that others can have more comfort. We need to be willing to give away some of our influence so others can have influence. We need to sometimes reduce our voice so others can have greater voice. One of the dangers of being in the dominant culture is the subtle pride that comes in and says, my way is not only the right way, it's the moral way. We start taking our cultural assumptions and ways of doing things, and we look at them and we think they're not only right for us, they're right for everybody. If everybody just did it like we did, they'd be right too. We end up moralizing our cultural expressions and social norms. Listen, we need to be willing to empower generously. One final thought. When I, when I planted Trailhead Church ages and ages and ages ago, I was, uh, I was fascinated with the early church. Our core practices are based on Acts 2.42 where the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to community, to, to loving each other. To, right? I, was, I was obsessed with that, but there was something I missed a decade ago when I was sitting in this passage. I didn't see this. That there was a necessary component to this experience. We need to lean into diversity. I don't, think, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think Antioch is as powerful as it is if it has a homogenous leadership team. I don't think it's as transformative as it is if, if the gospel hadn't led them to tear down the ethnic dividing walls, the, un, the, 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 the walls that their pride and their fear had built as opposed to the walls God had torn down by the work of Christ. It is not a dream for us to think that we can't experience this today as well. I am thrilled with the diversity that God has given Trailhead Church. We are diverse in age, which is something very, very cool. We're diverse in politics, which is ridiculous. I mean, it really is. That sort of stuff doesn't happen today. And, and we have racial diversity that reflects the racial diversity of our community. But that doesn't mean I don't want to grow. I long for an increased experience of racial diversity in Trailhead Church. I long for the day when we, we have racially diverse people at the highest levels of leadership helping us see what we don't see, helping us experience what we are not currently experiencing. And what we need to do right now is keep being faithful to pushing into humility. Keep pushing into grace. Allowing ourselves to go into these areas that are uncomfortable so that we can grow in our ability to love. All right, that's our case study. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to share communion in a moment. Let me pray. Father, I thank you um, for the gift of your son because it's in him that we have any hope for ourselves individually. I mean, we, we could not have peace with you outside of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, nor could we have peace with one another outside of, out of that work tearing down the dividing walls of hostility between the us's and the them's. Lord, may we be a people that drink deeply at the fountain of grace, that we might be undone in our pride and released from our greed and, 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 and growing in our hunger for love. And then, Spirit, will you do what only you can do? Make the glory of God known through the work of Jesus in our community. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.